Okay, great. This is Christy Balsells, and I'm just going to go ahead and get us started. Super. So, welcome. This is Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director of MitoAction, and today is the 5th of December, 2008. And our topic today is genetic inheritance patterns in mitochondrial disease. And I'm very excited about this topic and also very excited to welcome our speaker, who is a physician who I know well and respect very much. Dr. Catherine Sims is joining us today from Massachusetts General Hospital, and one of the reasons that I really am excited to hear Dr. Sims speak today is that I feel like she's a, a brilliant lady who really understands mitochondrial disease, but also has the unique perspective of having both a research focus as well as a clinical focus, and so I feel like she brings patient experience as well as an excellent depth of understanding about mitochondrial disease to our presentation. And I know that this is an area that I get questions about quite a bit and that always is confusing for families, my own included. So we're really looking forward to having um, her presentation today. There are slides that are visuals that go along with today's presentation, which you can find on the website. So if you'll just go to the website and then find the announcement page which you can link to off of the homepage for genetic inheritance and mitochondrial diseases. You'll see that there's a link there that you can download the PDF of the slide that she's going to refer to today. If you need to hang up for any reason, you can call back in, and I just remind everybody not to put us on hold because we get some music in the background, and if you'd like to mute your individual line, you can do so as well. So, Dr. Sims, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited to have you. Oh, great. Well, thanks, Christy, and, and thanks, everyone, for inviting me uh, and that nice introduction. Uh, I hope that I can clarify things by speaking slowly, and I hope that the slides are helpful. Um, Christy had asked me to focus on the topic of the genetic inheritance patterns in mitochondrial disease, and that's what I'm going to try to do. Um, the first slide, you'll see beyond the tail slide, um, just is a cartoon, not that I drew this, but it's a nice cartoon that reminds us all about what the mitochondria does and all the very complex metabolism that is involved in this small organelle, and therefore uh, the proteins and really the genes that are involved in helping the mitochondria be built, uh, stay stable, do the functions it does. So it's a very complicated organelle with many pathways, many, many proteins, as you'll see as we go on in the talk some of which um, uh, we identify and some that we don't yet know about. Just to look at this slide a little bit to remind you, glycolysis is when you break down sugar, so eating things, carbohydrates and so forth, uh, come into the mitochondria through pyruvate. We'll refer to that a little bit. When they come into the inner part of the mitochondria, there's something called the TCA cycle. It also can be called the Krebs cycle. That's a very important part of the pathway that then shunts protons down to that big orange blob, the oxidative phosphorylation pathway, which has many names. It's also called the respiratory chain and the electron transport chain. On the right side, you see that the mitochondria is also very important in uh, metabolizing fats. Fatty acyl-CoA transport is highlighted there, as is beta oxidation, which is a metabolic pathway, again, breaking down fats that give us other substrates that go on to be used in other pathways that we've already talked about in the mitochondria. 
the bottom line for the mitochondria and all the cells in which it lives is that the organelle produces ATP, which is its cellular currency. So that's kind of just a little background about what the mitochondria is in really brief and oversimplified fashion. And now we'll sort of uh, highlight particularly the electron transport chain in the next slide. You'll see, and again, this is not my cartoon, but it's a very uh, informative one, quite beautiful and um, a little complex, so you don't need to, to pay attention to a lot of the fine print. But what this is showing you is the five multi-protein complexes that are important and the components of the electron transport chain. They're shown just as they are in real life, embedded in the inner membrane of the mitochondria. So this is just a, a little tiny shot of the mitochondria way into the inner membrane. And in these complexes, uh, complex one is identified as a single glob, but that's actually 40 plus proteins. Complex two has fewer, it really has four main component protein parts, three, four, and five as you go down to the right. This transport chain acts just as a chain. It is using oxygen. It's taking protons from further up in the metabolic pathway. It's transferring electrons, hence one of its names, down the pathway. You can see uh, complex one and complex two hand the electron to coenzyme Q10, which is there embedded in the membrane, then on to three and four. Four is also called cytochrome oxidase, or COX. What that happens, that process happens, and it creates an electrochemical gradient, just like a battery, across that membrane. And that allows the very last complex, the ATPase, or complex 5, to, to have the energy to put phosphate onto ADP. ADP, adenine diphosphate, has just two phosphates. It puts a third phosphate on, and it makes ATP. And in that third phosphate bond is where all the energy is stored, and that's why ATP itself is an energy storage um, substance that the cell will use to do whatever the cell needs to do as an energy uh, source. So the electron transport chain is particularly important and, and a focus because it's going to lead into what the next slide is going to point out, and that is that as this organelle, the mitochondria, is built, as it's replicated and reproduced, as it's kept stable, as it imports various metabolic uh, substrates into it, as it uh, needs proteins to be embedded in the membranes and so forth, there are uh, two main genomes, two sources of DNA that are important for mitochondrial uh, stability, function, building, and so forth. Those two genomes one is called the mitochondrial DNA genome, and it's pictured up on the left there. It's a double-stranded, essentially a circle of DNA, which is used to encode, which encodes and is used to build just a few of the proteins that are important in the mitochondria. And, and the subsequent slides after this one are going to look both at the mitochondrial DNA and what its role in the mitochondria is and where it's working. The second input, the second DNA input to the mitochondria, is what we call the nuclear DNA. It's also what we think of generally as DNA. It's the chromosomes, and there's a little cartoon up there showing the chromosome and the DNA that is uh, that makes up the chromosome. 
So the nuclear DNA is what we usually think of when we think of uh, transferring diseases from one generation to the next, like cystic fibrosis or Alzheimer's disease and so forth. So first we'll talk a little bit about the mitochondrial DNA. Again, I'm just going to always put that picture up of the two-circle mitochondrial DNA. It's a very small piece of DNA. It's just 16,000, a little over 16,000 nucleotides, little building blocks, as compared to the chromosome material, which has millions. And this genome, this little circle of DNA, makes just a few proteins. It makes 13 proteins, structural proteins, that are part of the electron transport chain. So think back to that slide I showed you with the electron transport chain. I put it here on the slide, and what I put in green are the, the uh, parts of that electron transport chain that are encoded by the mitochondrial DNA. So complex one actually has seven of those proteins in it, and complex two has absolutely none encoded in the mitochondrial DNA. Complex three has one, Complex four, cytochrome oxidase has three, and the last complex has two. So as you can see, even for the electron transport chain, the vast majority of genes that encode proteins that are important to structural and structural functional aspects of mitochondria actually come from the nuclear DNA. In addition to the 13 structural proteins encoded in the mitochondrial DNA, there are also 22 what are called tRNAs, and those are um, uh, molecules that are important in putting amino acids onto a growing peptide chain or protein. So they're kind of, they're workhorses of building proteins. They're not themselves encoding actual uh, uh, proteins. And our RNAs are ribosomal proteins, again, important in ribosomal function. They're not building, um, they're not genes that are building specific uh, components of the electron transport chain or structure. The rest of the mitochondria, its outer membrane, its cytosol, its uh, ability to, to do a lot of the activities that are important in replicating itself and segregating itself and so forth are not encoded in the mitochondrial DNA and we'll talk about the nuclear factors in a minute. So when one has a problem in the mitochondrial DNA, and these were the human disorders that were first identified back in the mid to late 1980s and have continued to be uh, elaborated and understood a little bit, the first ones that were noticed in humans were ones that were associated with problems in the mitochondrial DNA. And this table is not a complete list, but it's a this that came from Columbia, this, this representative of what we know and how we think about a point mutation, a single nucleotide change in the mitochondrial DNA, how it can affect human function, and uh, that function is affected through the mitochondria. So in the left-hand part of this table, you'll see what you probably all recognize as fairly common ways of referencing a human disease or constellation of problems. So the LHON is Leber's optic neuropathy. MELAS is uh, mitochondrial encephalopathy with lactic acidosis and stroke. MRF, NARP, PEO, myopathy, cardiomyopathy. And there are a variety of name syndromes. The names actually reference what was first recognized as the group of clinical problems that were seen in those patients. 
as time has gone on, uh, we've recognized more um, extended clinical phenotypes or clinical problems in these patients. It's made it a bit more confusing, but the principle still holds. For example, if you look in the MELAS category, there are uh, six nucleotides, and they're numbered. They're, all the nucleotides in the mitochondrial DNA just have a number, uh, 3243, 3271, and so forth down the list there. Next to that, it indicates what the mutation is, what the DNA change is that uh, underlies this problem. And on the right, it shows you what gene is affected by that nucleotide change. So you can have uh, a MELAS-like syndrome that might come because of problems in a number of different nucleotide mutations. And they would affect function in a variety of ways. And the clinical picture might be strokes or stroke-like events, but it might also be quite different. And I didn't put a slide in to represent it, this, but for example, the nucleotide mutation 3243 can give you a picture of MELAS, but if you look further down, it can also give you PEO, which is a difficulty with eye movements. And in fact, mutations in 3243 in patients can give a very, very wide range of clinical problems. And sometimes there isn't lactic acidosis, and sometimes there isn't stroke. The, <clears throat> the other way the mitochondrial DNA can be uh, disordered and cause clinical problem in people, in addition to, to this kind of list of specific nucleotide point mutations, is if the mitochondrial DNA has sustained a deletion in some uh, extent. And that is true particularly in, in a couple of different syndromes. One is uh, KSS or Kern-Sayer syndrome and, again, PEO. And this means for usually sporadic reasons, these are not usually um, familial, they occur just once, something injures the DNA and a big chunk of that mitochondrial DNA is lost and it goes on to cause clinical problems that are um, relatively uh, unique. So, let's see what my next slide is. So the important thing from a genetic point of view, so we've got the mitochondrial DNA that can be disordered in a number of different ways. You can have point mutations, you can have deletions, and later we'll talk about uh, nuclear genes that affect how much mitochondrial DNA you have, mitochondrial DNA depletion syndromes. So they can, the mitochondrial DNA can be affected in a variety of ways, and it can give what we call syndromes, various um, clinical uh, features which we recognize, and sometimes ones that are more broad, like uh, myopathy, which means muscle weakness. The important thing about the mitochondrial DNA in regards to its genetics is that it is transferred only in the egg. So it comes from the mother in her egg. All the mitochondrial DNA does. And there are many mitochondrial DNA uh, units in every mitochondria, and every cell has many, many mitochondria. So when the egg is fertilized by the sperm and then those cells unite and then daughter cells are formed two and four and eight and so forth to form the full human fetus, the mitochondrial DNA is, is being duplicated and divided between those dividing cells, but it all starts with the mother's mitochondrial DNA. And the pedigree there shows you the kind of 
pattern of inheritance you might see in a family. So circles are women, squares are men. And it doesn't mean that only women are affected. So men or women can be affected, but only women will pass the mitochondrial DNA problem, the mutation, down to the next generation. And it is this unique quality of the mitochondrial DNA-based problems that uh, helps us understand maternal inheritance in some people with mitochondrial disorders. Obviously, if the problem is not in the mitochondrial DNA, then it's not going to be a maternal inheritance uniquely, and we'll get to that in a second. The other, one other important aspect of the transferring of a mutation in the mitochondrial DNA is on the next, shown on the next slide, and that's the, it's called heteroplasty. It's a term which refers to the mixing of normal mitochondrial DNA and abnormal mitochondrial DNA. And we believe that if every mitochondrial DNA in uh, an egg carried a mutation, that would probably not be a viable egg, and uh, if, if the, it would not go on to form a human being that was able to stay alive. There'd be total inability to generate the cellular energy that one needed. So every human that has a that has a mitochondrial disorder is kind of a mosaic, is a mix. And that top picture is meant to, it's a little confusing and I apologize, but it shows that in the egg, the big uh, circle on the left, there are, in, in the mother's egg, there is a mixture of abnormal and normal mitochondria at some percentage. And you can see they've portrayed separate um, portions of those mitochondria in different percents. So in some, there are three mutants and one normal, others two and two, or, the, uh, or one and three normals. That, as the cells replicate, meaning duplicate what's there, and then divide, we, we think that there are a number of different processes that affect how that segregation of abnormal mitochondria occurs. And it's partly random. It may be more controlled uh, in ways we don't yet understand. But in the bottom line is that the cells that come to make up different eggs in the female are going to be different balances of mutant burden. So some may have 80, 90 percent, others will have 50, 20, 10 percent, and there might even be some eggs that were actually carrying no mutant mitochondrial DNA. That's going to set the stage for the union with the sperm. Now you've got a single cell that's going to divide, and all those mitochondria are going to have to divide hundreds and thousands of times as they form new cells and divide to be more cells. The picture on the right there kind of is a little graphic of how when you have a problem on one area, this is showing chromosomes, but the same would hold for mitochondria, the abnormality begins to separate differently as mother and daughter cells are formed during the division that uh, is happening in the formation of a fetus and ultimately a person. And this is meant to portray the mosaicism that is represented in any person who's eventually born. And depending on whether the mutant mitochondrial DNA is high in its percent, whether it's in heart cells 
or whether it's in GI tract cells or whether it's in central nervous system neurons, and also depending on how much burden of the mutant it is carrying, that's going to affect how much disease, we think, how much disease expression there is for that person as they are born and as they grow and live. It's a, a, a com complicated schema, and it's difficult to prove in any one person, and it's, it's an assumption about the kind of mosaicism that any one person has. And again, this all relates only to those mutations which are in the mitochondrial DNA because of this unique maternal inheritance. We're now going to switch gears, and we're going to talk about the mitochondrially important genes that are not encoded in the mitochondrial DNA, but are encoded in the nuclear DNA, the chromosomes. And the estimates, and these range uh, from, you know, a few hundred to many of over a thousand to even more than 1,200 genes and proteins, which are directly important in mitochondrial function. And I've listed just some of the ways those proteins might be working. So we talked very specifically about how most of the structural components of the electron transport chain actually have their proteins encoded in the nuclear DNA. So that's an important source um, for the electron transport chain. The electron transport chain proteins and those complexes are, are multi-protein structures, and they have to be assembled. And the proteins that are important in helping do that assembly and embed those proteins in the membrane are also nuclear-encoded. There are nuclear-encoded genes which are very important in communication, so-called intergenomic signaling, between the nuclear DNA and the mitochondrial DNA because this organelle is built from both. There are also nuclear genes important in mitochondrial assembly and stability, in replication and biogenesis. We know mitochondria fuse together and then they divide, and there are very complicated aspects of that that are only just beginning to be understood. And, of course, the mitochondria does other things besides having the electron transport chain. It also does fatty acid oxidation and Krebs cycle. Proteins are important, and those are all encoded in the nuclear DNA. So the bottom line is that you, if you had a problem in a nuclear DNA gene that was affecting mitochondrial function, it wouldn't be transferred just through the mother. Um, it might be, but it would be transferred by more standard, what we call Mendelian inheritance or Mendelian genetics. And I just put down the pedigree pictures of the three common forms that we know about of Mendelian inheritance. Autosomal dominant, that's where either the mother or the father can transfer the gene defect to any of the offspring, and you need just a single dose of the genetic problem. Second portrait there is autosomal recessive, and that's where you need two doses. You need a dose from the mother and a dose from the father to be affected, so there's a different risk to the offspring. In autosomal dominant, there was a 50-50 chance that that abnormal gene would be passed on. In autosomal recessive disease, it's a different uh, population risk. There's a 25% risk that the uh, offspring will be affected. 25% risk they'll be normal, and 50% risk they themselves will be a carrier and presumably not affected very much, just as the parents were 
Cystic fibrosis is an example of autosomal recessive disease. Many of the mitochondrial disorders which affect children or uh, contribute to so-called these disease or encephalomyelopathy disorders are actually autosomal recessive disorders, the ones we know and can identify. And then, potentially, some disorders of mitochondrial <coughs> function could be X-linked. And that means the defect uh, is on the X chromosome. The female has two X chromosomes. Uh, that means usually the woman is able to compensate for the genetic defect because she has two Xs. There's only one X that's a problem. And so the female is usually a, a carrier and not showing much in the way of clinical symptoms. When she gives the mutant X to her son, the son gets just one X, the X from the mother, and a Y from the father, then that son will be affected. The mother could give the normal X to the son, in which case the son would be normal. Um, this is a rarer form of inheritance in general and probably less likely to be a form of inheritance uh, uh, that's very common in mitochondrial disorders. These next two slides <coughs> are a little complicated and they're not, they're meant only to be uh, referencing as examples some of the known nuclear genes that have been identified to date. As I said, there's some thought there's over at least 1,200 and there may be 40 or so um, at most currently identified. So the structural genes that go to make up the electron transport chain for complex one, for example, have been identified, and they, they've got these very poetic names, NDUFV1, FV2, and so forth. These are genes that are encoding a protein that's part of that complex one. Not all of them, because we know there are at least 40 plus of them, and we so not all those genes have yet been identified. You can see on the right that when there's a complex one problem, isolated complex one deficiency that's referable to a problem in the structure of complex one, the clinical problems are usually quite significant and occur quite early on in age. So they're, they're mostly uh, been described in children, infants or young children that have Lee's disease. There have been other, other clinical features noted. You can see some of them listed there. And there have been uh, infrequent reports of adult problems like adult myopathy that was associated with one of the structural complex one components. Complex two also, it's a smaller complex. None of its proteins are encoded in the mitochondrial DNA. They're all encoded in the nuclear DNA. All four subunits have been identified. And again, they, they have been described in patients with Lee's disease or uh, paraganglioma. And then there are important uh, nuclear genes involved in the synthesis, synthesis of coenzyme Q10. The next page shows other uh, nuclear genes that have been identified that are important in complex four or Cox assembly. And again, they've been identified in patients with very severe, uh, usually infantile or very young child onset problems. There are others that involve the nucleotide pool like AMP1 and uh, there's prob there can be problems in thymidine phosphorylation, which lead to the syndrome of Mingi, which is a GI dysmotility encephalopathy syndrome. And there are many more. As I said, there are about 45 or so nuclear genes identified to date, and there are many more to be identified that will be underlying molecular factors in mitochondrial function, including the electron transport chain, but also a wide variety of other things important to the mitochondria 
and we don't know those yet, and therefore we can't test for them. So just to remind you again, there's two genomes that give important input to the mitochondria and therefore to the clinical features that one sees in a person. The mtDNA is maternally inherited and the nuclear DNA factors and those are by far the majority, although we can't recognize them in most cases yet, those are bimendelian inheritance. And just my final slide. So when you step back and say, how do we diagnose mitochondrial disease, it's a whole series of attempts to gather the evidence that support this diagnosis, and it starts at the clinical picture and multi-system problems that one may see. You can see physiologic abnormalities, biochemical abnormalities, pathologic abnormalities. You can measure electron transport chain function. You may see dysfunction there. And then after all of that analysis, you may go on to molecular testing, which may identify a mitochondrial DNA gene or uh, less frequently um, may identify a nuclear DNA gene mutation that underlies the diagnosis. We can fully sequence the mitochondrial DNA, and that's being done in a number of different ways in clinical testing labs. So we can get a pretty good look at that part of the DNA and say, does it look normal or abnormal? But as I've said a number of times, the nuclear DNA is really a giant black box. We have a few genes that we know and can test for, most of which we can't. So not finding a nuclear DNA um, lesion doesn't rule out the fact that this may be familial, it may be genetically inherited, there may be genetic risk for family members, we just can't identify the features. So I hope that helps set the stage for some questions. Uh, Excellent. Kathy, thank you so much. It's, it's, it's very clear and I, it's a complex topic. And I, before I open the line, I just wanted to ask you a couple questions that um, I hope will help clarify also. So in adults versus children, is there a difference in the way it's inherited since there are different ages of onset? That's a really good question. And, of course, everything I say is, is both my knowledge and what maybe limits knowledge in general. So I think we're still learning a lot about these diseases, and we don't any of us have the full picture. In general, the mitochondrial DNA-associated syndromes do not, do not start in infancy or, or very early childhood. They typically uh, begin to show clinical problems in late childhood, teenage years, or even adult years when you identify them. It does not mean that as an adult you can only have an mtDNA syndrome. It just means that it would be very unlikely, except for a couple of exceptions, to find an mtDNA-based mutation that's going to explain a very early uh, infant or childhood problem. The adults that we see, uh, if they have a, a mtDNA-based syndrome, then we can make that diagnosis and clarify uh, the potential clinical future and risk and management and, and help identify very clearly the genetic risk in families. In children, if you don't find an mtDNA um, lesion, which is usual, usual case, then you're left with this big black box of is this genetic or is this sporadic? If it's genetic, might it be a nuclear DNA mutation that's underlying all this? And we have such few tools to test that that it is often, un excuse me, uncommon in children to make a molecular diagnosis. But you can often make an electron transport chain 
diagnosis. You can see measurable dysfunction in complex one, for example, isolated, or complex four, or maybe in multiple electron transport chain function. And that can support the diagnosis even if you can't identify a specific molecular lesion. Does that forget it, what you were asking? Yes. Yeah. Yes, and you mentioned genetic versus sporadic. Do you, do you have an idea in terms of percentage of what's genetic versus what's sporadic in the general population of patients who are affected? Sure, and, and that actually brings up, I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer that, but the first thing I might say is that, you know, we talk of mitochondrial disorders as a unified group of things, but in fact there probably are primary mitochondrial problems, which is, what I've really been talking about today, mostly. But there are, we know, secondary mitochondrial problems where it's not a primary problem in the mitochondria or its protein or um, in, in anything, uh, a single unit of that uh, organelle, but where the organelle, which we know can be vulnerable to oxidative stress or injury or aging, is under siege because of some other diagnosis. Um, so. When you step back and say, is this genetic or not, or is this sporadic or not, you also have to ask, too, is this a primary mitochondrial problem, or is this a secondary mitochondrial problem? Secondary mitochondrial problems, for example, may be the measurable uh, problems in electron transport chain function that one sees in Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease. Those may not be primary mitochondrial problems, but secondarily, their genetic risk is going to track with the primary disease, Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease. But if you exclude those and you say we're just talking about the primary mitochondrial disorders, most of them are, uh, most of them we don't know because we don't have the molecular test that allows us to look at other family members and particularly look at parents and siblings and the the primary core family that, that allows you to say whether the relatives have the disease or not. Molecular diagnosis allows a yes-no far better than any of other of these other aspects, clinical or biochemical. So often we suspect that it's familial based on clinical history or some other biochemical abnormalities in parents or relatives, but we can't prove it. So that may be genetic, but we don't have the tools to prove it is. Sporadic disease can happen. That happens in, in non-mitochondrial genetic disease. The mutation occurs for the first time in someone in the family, and that certainly presumably can happen even for point mutations in the mitochondria, DNA, or in the nuclear genes that are important. But we would suspect that would not be the vast majority of cases. The ones we know that are sporadic are primarily the ones which are associated with actual deletion of the mitochondrial DNA. And those are relatively rare, Kurtzers, PEO, and so forth. So if I had to guess, I would say sporadic is um, primary mitochondrial disease, as sporadic disease is, is probably less frequent. But we so often don't have the tools to absolutely say that one way or another. Very good. And, and along that same lines, I've, I think we've all heard um, conflicting ideas on when you look at the different ways that the mitochondrial disease could be inherited, autosomal recessive, recessive autosomal dominant. Um, do you feel like you could give us a percentage on 
on each of those as well? No. <laughs> but but uh, because I think we're still uncovering um, the clinical dis disorders. Um, you know, the clue that something may be recessive is usually that both parents of an affected person, child or teenager or adult, appear normal. Um, that's usually what one expects in recessive disease. So recessive disease, unless there's a consanguinity and everyone is from the same family and they're marrying their cousins over many generations, which can happen but isn't isn't the usual course. Recessive disease is not going to show up in multiple generations of a family. So the history, again, for recessive disease is usually a person or a person and their siblings that have the problem with the parents being normal, the first degree, and other past generations being normal, not having similar problems. The problem in being absolutely firm about that in mitochondrial disease is that many of the features that we associate with mitochondrial disease clinically are relatively common. So you can see diabetes in a broad population of people. It's a common disorder. Most of that is probably not going to be mitochondrial. Some of it is. Same thing, uh, sensory neural hearing loss is relatively common. Not early onset, but later onset. So as you take a family history, you may hear, even in the parents, um, a, a symptom or a sign or a problem that raises the question of mitochondrial disease. doesn't prove it, but it makes it less easy to recognize recessive diseases. You know, everybody's normal except for this affected child or teenager or adult in their siblings. So it's hard to exclude uh, that it, or it's hard to um, use the family history to absolutely say this is a recessive disorder. Dominant disease usually appears in multiple generations. So you should be hearing a story of um, fairly similar, but not always the same, clinical problems that are traveling generation through generation. But again, we know from other non-mitochondrial diseases some genetic diseases are not very penetrant. You might be carrying the disease gene, but you appear very normal, or you appear normal only under stress. And there can be variability in the severity of the disease, so that when a child is recognized as having the problem, first pass you think the parents both are normal, um, but maybe on closer questioning, or if you've had a definitive test, or if you did a muscle biopsy and did the whole full workup, you might actually find that they are carrying it and it's a, in a different expression pattern or it's milder. Um, so that not having good diagnostic tools that are absolutely, you know, black and white, having a complex uh, uh, clinical effect that makes taking just a standard history not very straightforward to know whether is this suggestive of mitochondrial disease or not, and having you know, no very simple test unless you have a molecular uh, lesion, a molecular mutation that you, you you don't have yes, no ways of testing other family members. So it can sometimes be very hard to sort out what you think is dominant, recessive or not. So that's why I would say it's hard to put numbers 
Although, in general, I think people feel that early onset infantile problems are usually going to be um, nuclear encoded and probably recessive, but, you know, there are exceptions. That's that a long answer. <laughs> you know, I think all of this information is information that that many people don't get, and they just, you know, even when they have the full workup. Um, and and I'm just fielding some questions I've gotten by email before I open the lines as well. Um, if you'll just give a, a broad kind of statement about why do some people get a muscle biopsy and some people have physicians who don't do muscle biopsy and they feel that they can do laboratory tests instead. Mm-hmm. Well, a little bit of this is clinical judgment. Um, a, a lot of the decision-making about how um, aggressive to be in doing uh, evaluation and workup depends on um, what, why you're doing that. So if you're trying, if you think there's a likelihood of establishing a molecular diagnosis, you might go right to that first if you had a clue. You might, you've had adults who've had stroke syndromes and we've just tested for MELAS in their blood and they, those people never get a muscle biopsy because we've been able to identify the molecular lesion right in the blood. So sometimes you, you don't need it because you have other tools to make the diagnosis. The other big factor is that since we don't have any direct ways of treating these diseases to correct them, so there's no uh, direct and definitive therapies uh, and the, the advice to decrease metabolic stress, to stay healthy, to take cofactors, which are vitamins, are probably good advice for everyone and hopefully not harmful. Some people would might choose to not carry on a full muscle biopsy or uh, invasive workup because they're quite comfortable and the patient and family are comfortable that this is a mitochondrial disorder based on clinical and biochemical data and that there's no need to do the muscle biopsy because it's not going to change management. You're not using anything that's dangerous uh, and you're not really going to make any different medical management decisions right now based on that or not. Other people, both patients, families, and physicians, feel a little bit more compulsive about trying to gather as much information as you can so that you can at least know the the data that we can know in 2008, uh, and that may lead you to um, do more exploration in um, other areas, be it further molecular testing or different management tools or so forth that there may be some minor changes in management and there may be information that would be helpful for genetic risk assessment. And you just need to know so that going forward, you're ready to uh, identify those people because they have complex one deficiency, for example, and you now have new insight into it and you want to think about a strategy for study or management or something. Great. Thank you so much. That's an excellent answer. So um, I'm going to open, I'm going to unmute everyone and then field a couple questions And um, in our remaining time. And, and this is a complicated topic. You've done a, a wonderful job explaining it. Well, I hope it didn't take too much time. Uh, no, I think, I think it's good. complex. So hold on one second and we'll unmute everyone. Okay, so um, we'll just open it for questions. This is what we usually do if you'll just um, speak up and I'll help moderate. And I remind everyone that um, to make your question, please, as applicable to the whole group as you can, as opposed to about your personal 
um, scenario. So um, anyone who would like to ask a question? What about mixed sources of information, uh, maternal and um, nuclear government? Okay, so Jean, if you'll just introduce yourself briefly, and then um, go, and then I'll ask to see if Dr. Sims needs further clarification about that. Okay, um, I'm Jean Shepard. I'm from uh, Canada, presently in California, and I'm uh, in the middle of um, multi multi um, family members. I, I, I suspect two of us have been identified. And uh, we have Wardenburg syndrome, uh, which is nuclear dominant, and also one, two, and four uh, are scratching their heads. Okay. Uh, well, I can try. Um, it sounds like I think you're asking about can a family carry um, multiple genetic disorders. I think that's what you mean by mixed. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the, the source, uh, the source of the genetics, because we have uh, youngsters coming up, you know, mm -hmm. and we would like mm -hmm. to know. Sure. So um, it sounds like, it, and really, it's the generic question that's important, and that is, um, you know, Wardenburg syndrome, for example, is someone we're carrying a risk of hypertension or hyperlipidemia or Warden, or name syndrome. That that genetic inheritance pattern, uh, hopefully, is well known, and and with counseling, they would. Uh, inform you about the risk that that, that would be passed on in, in, um, to the family, right? So that's pretty clear, right? But the complex 1, 2, and 4, if that's, that's what you said, I believe, yes. suggests that there is a uh, multiple electron transport chain enzyme deficiency, and that does come up in a number of cases. That suggests at least a few things. It may not give the full answer because that's, just telling you that there's a biochemical problem that's affecting multiple complexes. Um, what it is telling you is that it's probably not a single complex or structural protein problem in complex one, because it would be very unusual to imagine that that would cause trouble in the in complex two. Uh, so it suggests that there is some non-structural or some other protein that's very important to multiple of the complexes in that electron transport chain. And, that's, and, and that suggests that it could, I mean, it doesn't really tell you where that problem is. Sometimes that can come from mitochondrial DNA problems. Um, not structural problems, but problems in tRNA and protein function and delivery. And it also, of course, could come from a nuclear protein that was very important in multiple complex function. The complex two deficiency, though, raises the question uh, that it is not, the complex two is not, remember, in, none of the structural proteins are encoded in the mitochondrial DNA. So it suggests that the mitochondrial DNA may not be playing at least the structural role, in, uh, a problem in the structural function of complex two, but it can't eliminate that there may not be some uh, global effect on the chain-like function. But the likelihood is that that is also a nuclear gene if it's genetic, and there's no reason to suspect that I know of that it's 
segregating along with Wardenburg syndrome or any other syndrome a family had another genetic disease, it, it raises the question, you know, are they related and, and somebody should be thinking about that and maybe there's a clue there, but it, to my knowledge that doesn't, I, I know of no association between those two. So I would think of them as you look at your family as independent genetic risks. Thank you. Does that make sense? Thank you. Thank you. So I'd like to field one more question from the group that, is, again, is something that um, is something that we can all learn from despite our specific diagnoses. I have a question. Um, um, my name is Robert Krakow, and uh, I have a, a child who was diagnosed uh, years ago. Uh, he's nine years old now with autism. And now, if you know, he has a confirmed complex one defect through fresh muscle biopsy uh, analysis and enzymology, and also subunits, I think, of complex two and four. And my question is, uh, to what extent, and there's no genetic uh, finding at all, uh, to what extent, uh, in your opinion, are uh, sporadic um, uh, manifestations of mitochondrial dysfunction um, caused or affected by an interplay of environmental factors and susceptibility genes as opposed to genetically uh, sure. disease-causing genes. Sure. Well, I think, uh, you know, these are difficult um, problems for anyone to pull apart at this point. Um, you know, we know from other genetic diseases, which are a little simpler to sort out and other clinical disorders, that there are often other what are called epigenetic or other genetic loci that, that don't necessarily co-segregate in families with everyone that has the problem. So, again, there may be mitigating uh, genetic risk or predisposing factors which change the expression of uh, the disease like autism or whatever. Um, there also may be, um, and this might be a case in point, as I was saying before, that some of these complex deficiencies may not be the primary problem. Again, it may be uh, difficult to sort that out. It may depend on the um, kinds of studies that can't be done yet uh, clinically, uh, and, and it may just um, reference our ignorance. The, the degree of deficiency... Uh, may give a clue as to whether it's a primary problem or whether it's secondary to some other sporadic event or, or environmental factor. We, we know for sure that the electron transport chain is very vulnerable to oxidative stress, to free radicals, to the effects of aging, which include those and probably other things we don't know. Uh, they play a very important role in uh, apoptosis and cell death and pruning. Uh, many of the factors in humans are not understood that control those, those uh, very complicated processes. So when you have a person with a problem and then you have something that you measure, it's, it's sometimes very difficult to sort out whether you're just measuring a secondary problem along a long cascade or whether this is really the primary problem and, and off of that comes all the different clinical features, but also <laughs> with the added vulnerability of, you know, the environmental injury and damage or exposure that we all live with uh, that, 
that, um, you know, this person would also have to. So it's a long way of saying it's impossible to, at this point to kind of sort these out. Thank you. So, thank you, Dr. Sim. So we're we're at the end of our time, and I um, I want to thank you for being here today and I and taking the time to explain this. I will post the audio recording of the meeting as well as the slides that are already on the website um, with the summary of what you've talked about in writing as well as um, putting this as a playable audio file and our podcast. And I think it will just be very helpful because um, it's the kind of thing that I think you need to listen to for those of us who are family members a couple times to really <laughs> tease out the information. So, but you've, you've done an excellent job explaining the complicated topic, and we really appreciate it. So please join me in thanking Dr. Sims for um, talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Bye now. Dr. Sims, thank you so much. So, thank you. Thank you. So, everyone, you can sit on the call for a second, and I'll just um, a little bit further and also make a few um, announcements. Okay, so I'll just talk a little bit further, um, and, and thank you guys for being here. I'm sorry we didn't have that much time for questions, but I felt like it was important to really give Dr. Sims the chance to fully explain um, what what we had um, in terms of her slides and her presentation because it is complex. So if you have um, further questions, you know, I may or may not be able to answer those, but I'm happy to try to field them if you'd like to email me. So you can email me. Again, this is Christy. I'm the executive director, and you can email me at director at mitoaction.org. I also wanted to just make a couple announcements, and then we can just open the floor for general conversation as well. There, if you are interested or if this is your first time joining a Mito Action meeting, I want to just remind you that you can um, always listen to the recordings of these meetings as well as read the written summary. And the best place to do that is to go into the blog area of the Mito Action site. So if you go to mitoaction.org backslash blog, it'll take you to an area of the website where there are categories on the left, and you can browse around through those categories and actually um, read the different articles and summaries of the meetings, as well as then find the, the recording within each um, topic. If you were looking just for a big list of all the recordings for all the meetings, you could go to the media page which is mitoaction.org backslash media, M-E-D-I-A, and you would see down at the bottom of that page um, a list of all of the audio recordings from the different speakers we've had over the last year. Um, if you're an iTunes person, you'll see on that media page a little link on the right-hand side that will take you to iTunes. So if you have an iPod, um, these are all posted as free podcasts also, and so if you're an iTunes person, you know what I'm talking about, and you can subscribe to those, and then that way they would sync up your iPod automatically, and then you could listen to them on the go. Um, I wanted to tell you that if you're not subscribed to our email, um, I really recommend that you do that. It's simple. You just enter your email address right off the homepage, and then you're a member of MitoAction, and we, um, we purposely don't charge for any of that. And 
that way you'll get the summaries of the meetings as well as announcements and reminders about these um, meetings as well as other topics and information. And in a couple weeks, I'll be putting out the schedule for 2009 for who our speakers are, and I'm really excited because we've got um, some exciting topics and new speakers lined up, including um, focusing on different populations, the debate about autism, a uh, speaker from Pfizer on drug toxicity in mitochondrial disease, and uh, in January, I'm invited an occupational therapist who um, has a practice in Atlanta who has helped several students with mitochondrial disease make accommodations in schools. So she'll be talking about um, occupational therapy um, practices in mitochondrial disease and some, some strategies to be able to help with um, those kinds of activities of daily living that are important. Um, I also wanted to just mention one more thing, and then I, I'll stop talking, and we can um, open the floor for general conversation. We have had an ongoing new diagnosis support group happening by phone, again, using the same toll-free teleconference number that you use today that happens on the second Friday of every month. And so that's ongoing, and it is happening next Friday. So that's a group that is really just for people who are either going through or dealing with the new diagnosis of mitochondrial disease for themselves or for their child. And it's an open group, and it's much less structured than what we've done today. So it's really just a chance to meet other people and share and ask questions and collaborate on resources and, and vent and so forth. Um, we've just just started due to the success of, of these conference calls and I think the accessibility, which was really my goal in having a conference call that anybody could join. Um, we've started a couple more of these groups and so these will probably really kick off after the first of the year after the holidays. And I'll remind you of these by email, but just so you know, the third Friday of the month, we'll have a support group for parents and the fourth Friday of the month we'll have a support group for adults that will be happening at noon on those days and um, myself or one of the other um, volunteers with MyoAction um, who also has some nursing or social work background will run those. So I encourage you guys to stay tuned for those and to participate and help me spread the word about these things. Um, and of course to do your holiday shopping on Amazon and so forth and just be sure to get Get the link through the MitoAction website because with whatever money you spend, those stores give money back to nonprofits that are part of their network. And so we get um, free dollars, if you will, um, just from the holiday shopping dollars that you spend. So if you're doing that, I encourage you to remember MitoAction when you're doing your holiday shopping. So lots to absorb from today, but I did want to just open the floor to anybody who wanted to um, say hello or had any additional questions or announcements. Okay, so we'll just all say hello then. <laughs> and uh, lots to process, and I, I appreciate your patience in listening to Dr. Sims and in listening to me talk. And typically we have a chance to introduce ourselves a little further. Um, but in this case, we really needed every moment to be able to absorb the topic. So I thank you guys for being there. I encourage you to email me, director at mitoaction.org, and also to post your questions on the Mitochondrial Disease Forum, which is on the website. 
you can link it where it says online community at the top. I have uh, a, a question since if we have a minute. Sure, go ahead. Um, uh, I asked a question about uh, autism. Uh -huh. uh, my name is Robert Krakow, and I, I think you probably all uh, know, I don't know how many people are on the call, about the recent findings um, uh, confirming, uh, this is a study last week uh, that came out from, from researchers uh, partly at the Cleveland Clinic, confirming the existence of something which is, for lack of a better term, called mitochondrial autism. Um, and I, I just would be interested to the extent to which, uh, and this is new, the extent to which your organization is um, is looking at this, uh, because I think in the past, uh, it, 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 it generally a mitochondrial disorder disease has not been associated with autism. So, uh, so, so Robert, sort of asking a general, you know, just opening up. Sure, and I'm happy to talk about it because actually the day that that study went out, I did, I, I saw it as well, and I emailed our um, medical advisory committee, which is a group of doctors who are all local here in Boston, but it has, Boston happens to be a place where there's really um, a high caliber of doctors who are even subspecialists who may not be metabolic or mitochondrial disease doctors only, but you know, in cardiology, neurology, um, GI, that do have a broad patient base of mitochondrial disease patients. So I, I emailed them about that right away for their feedback, and I actually am I'm waiting for some additional feedback so that I can um, write a response about it right on the um, on the One website. of the, no, no, it's great. One of the authors, uh, Margaret Bowman, is at Mass General. Um, Right. So we always participate in the ladders conferences. Right, ladders. Dr. Roman does. Right. And so we are always there. And, and, you know, we've been talking about this over the last year because there's – so I think there's always been a group of parents who had children with mitochondrial disease who had the mitochondrial disease diagnosis maybe first, but then always said, my child has features of autism spectrum disorder. Right. So there was always that. What there wasn't, I think, was the group of parents who had children with some feature of autism who knew anything about mitochondrial disease, right? right. And now right. you've got, and now you've got that group of parents going, oh, well, maybe that's why my child, you know, is different in this way, right. in this way, in this way. In fact, and in fact, it's it's being confirmed, uh, as you saw from that study, and my personal experience, that the mitochondrial uh, defects are there, uh, and confirmatory in, in pronounced ways. Uh, the question is how they got there. Um, and a follow-up question I have, because there was a reference in the study that just came uh, came out. Uh, was um, this line, and I don't know if you saw it or, or, or I'm sure you did, after uh, suggesting that there was no um, um, relate, uh, no cause of causal factor that was identified between vaccination and uh, uh, mitochondrial dysfunction, this sentence was stated. That said, there might be no difference between the inflammatory or catabolic stress of vaccinations and that of common childhood diseases, which are known precipitants of mitochondrial regression, which I think is a very significant statement, and I you know, just thought it's something that your organization may uh, want to look at a little bit, um, obviously controversial. 
Well, I, you know, I, uh, fortunately for us, I think we have a pretty strong stance on being the voice of the patient community. So we don't mind being controversial with that because we're really, we're really interested in getting down to the bottom of at least what, as many answers as we can find. And, and Dr. Holtzman, who is at Mass General, um, has volunteered to actually take this topic head on and do one of these monthly sessions in the, probably the first quarter of 2009 on oh, this idea. And, and this is, we actually had talked about that even before this most recent article came out. Um, I think that just from the feedback I've gotten from our medical advisory committee, their thought is also that it's really um, nothing new, that perhaps there, the stress that is caused um, from, we do know that the stress that's caused from fevers and so forth can aggravate mitochondrial disease, or in some cases it's, it's the tipping point right. that makes, um, I hear this in adult patients as well, that that's the time when you recognize the symptoms full force, whereas before maybe they were just minor health things that maybe didn't seem that abnormal, um, but the, the illness or the stress is the tipping point. Sometimes it happens with a surgery as well, or a viral illness, or a high fever, or, you know, a period of being overheated, and those kinds of things. But that does happen, and so I think that is an important question that we have talked about before as well, is, is there a relationship between the stress that can happen with the vaccine and that, would that be the tipping point for mitochondrial disorder? Very and important know, yeah. Knowing that, there's probably a group of people who are going to have features of autism as part of their mitochondrial disorder. And, and the other part of that question is if the, the, the individual who succumbed uh, to the stress and now has a recognized mitochondrial dysfunction was completely asymptomatic prior to that, was the mitochondrial condition a disease or just a dormant susceptibility that cannot be called a disorder disease, which was brought out by this, this, this stressor? Um, and you know, there's, there's an important conceptual problem there because, uh, you know, did the, the, the individual always have a disorder? Well, it's completely asymptomatic and healthy, now sick. Which, you know, what, what's the causal factor? You know, the disease, gene, Vaccine, so I'm just throwing this out. I'm losing this and I just thought I'd no, appreciate think it's, your it's, No, it's excellent food for thought. And, in fact, you know, I think one of the questions that, um, that I also will be writing some commentary about that we didn't have time to dig into today is that there's another study that's out that is that has been in the past couple months that something like 1 in 200 people have yes. a mitochondrial DNA mutation. And so on first blush to a... Um, a lay person, I felt like the response to that was, oh, my gosh, that means that mitochondrial disease is actually way more common and everybody has it. And actually, that's not true. Um, what that actually implies is that maybe mitochondrial DNA mutations don't always mean mitochondrial disease. Well, that went to my question as to the interplay between the, the genetic factor and other factors, including you know, environmental factors, and what, what's the interplay and what's, what's really triggering the disease. It's not, it seems to me that there has to be an investigation of the fact that this disease may not be genetic in the sense that was previously understood. 
um, because people have the gene but don't have the disease. Correct. Right. Correct. And I think it's a great it's a great question. And I think that you know I really do think in the discussions that I've had with the physicians and just in and talking as part of the community and even to the folks who are people like at Sertris, um Pharma who are interested in in treating mitochondrial disorders and in doing trials for mitochondrial disorders, um, they're interesting questions, but we just don't have the answers yet. There's so much more to learn. The exciting part is that in the way that autism was really an under-recognized disorder five, ten years ago and has now um, gained a lot of momentum and attention and funding and so forth, the same will happen with mitochondrial disease in the next Five years. I think it's going to happen sooner because um, you're going to try to have a huge number of inquiries from families with autism. I'm very active in the autism community, uh, super active, and you're going to start seeing, uh, you're going to get a lot of interest from that community. I agree. Uh, and and uh, that's tomorrow. great because, <laughs> well, for a long time, there was this response of, oh, mitochondrial disease, and I bet many of you who are on the call can relate to this if you've been diagnosed for a number of years, where, you know, even as, as soon as four or five years ago, it was, oh, this is extremely rare. You know, this is, this is considered an extremely rare disease. And I think now that's kind of coming into question. What does that mean to be rare? And, and is it truly an orphan disease and, um, and so forth? And I think that, we may find that that's not the case because we find that it has a much broader meaning than we understood. But those answers aren't there. And, and topics like today, I think, just begin to at least explain some of the very complex and confusing biochemical parts of the disease, which are really challenging. And, um, and, and because every individual is different, then that becomes even more challenging to kind of understand the bigger picture. So, but I, I welcome your questions and your comments, Robert. I think that it's great and it's great thinking. And I also really believe that as the parent and patient and family population, we are our own best advocates and, um, and that collectively we have a very loud voice that doesn't need to be, you know, um, obnoxious or biased, but rather is one in which we can be well-informed and we can also help drive the movement for more awareness and understanding about the disease and to have the right questions picked apart. So, um, well, thank you. I think I so, so be sure to, yeah, no, be sure to spread the word when we, when I do send out the online schedule about that, um, that autism topic as well. Absolutely. So, any other comments or questions from folks? Um, we have I, a couple more minutes. Yeah. I just have a quick question. Go ahead. Yeah, my name is John Shepard. I'm here in Canada. Okay. Um, you, they mentioned the word stress. Has stress been external stress been a uh, 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 cause to trigger mitochondrial disease? So, John, I think that's an excellent question. Kind of is what we were just thinking about. I have never read a published study that describes, you know, a case population of people who reported that they had a lot of stress and it triggered the disease. I think anecdotally, I will share with you that I have heard patients talk about that. And we know that there is a physiologic component of stress, right, that, that happens as much as there's a component of stress to the body that happens if you're sick. So, um, but I have never seen it documented. 
having said that, there's a lot of things that we haven't seen documented yet. And one of the things that I always remind people, adults and parents of children, is that a diagnosis of mitochondrial disease is not a death sentence, contrary to what you might read, because the literature that's out there just hasn't necessarily caught up yet to the broad spectrum of patients that actually exist and are, and are being seen. So the documented cases, which are some of the cases that, you know, Dr. Sims was referencing when she had that list of all the mutations and so forth, these were the extreme cases that actually could be documented. But now we see a lot of gray and very little black and white in terms of who those patients are. So while what you read about in the literature can sound very extreme, um, there are actually, I think, thousands of people who are living with this disease and who just have not been described. I have a question if it's okay to ask. Sure, go ahead. Introduce yourself as well, too. Sure. Um, my name's Ron Todd, and um, I'm in Massachusetts. Um, and uh, actually still going through the process of diagnosis, so to speak. Um, having a <clears throat> the biopsy next week, actually. Um, but I want to go back to something that you were talking about a few minutes ago. Um, did I hear correctly that it sometimes is brought on um, by like a physical procedure? So not not directly. So not to insinuate in any way that um, oh I had surgery and the next day I had mitochondrial disease. But anecdotally, what we hear from patients um, is that there is some turning point, and that sometimes that turning point is something that causes a lot of metabolic stress, and metabolic stress is a time when it's difficult for your body to recover. And so surgery, for example, is a tipping point sometimes for mitochondrial disease patients, and forward thinking is a concern and needs to have a fair amount of precaution for mitochondrial disease patients because we know that mitochondrial disease patients don't do well with um, fasting or dehydration. They also have trouble metabolizing and um, recovering from anesthesia. So sometimes surgery is a tipping point for people with mitochondrial disease who did not recognize their symptoms prior. That, does that help clarify? Um, sort of, and actually both of that apply to me as far as the, um, not doing well with fasting and, and the first and, and um, which I'm wondering if that's a problem when I go through the biopsy next week. Um, but reason that I ask is because for me, as I hear other people saying, did seem to be perfectly healthy until three years ago I had so, uh, surgery on my shoulder and it was, it was the very next day that I started experiencing symptoms which, you know, here we are this, uh, three years plus later that they're still trying to get a handle on. Does anybody uh, um, on the group right now have any uh, comments about that? A similar situation? Can I like comment on that, Christian? Sure. Um, I think that you probably had mitochondrial disease to start out with. And the stress off the um, anesthetic and the recovery and the um, fasting prior to 
just put the pressure on the mitochondria, and all of a sudden that battery could no longer put out the energy. And um, m- my son asked a question about the the stress, and I think also um, to, to help answer his question is that that if you have mitochondrial disease there anyway, and you're subjected to a great deal of stress, that's going to put pressure on the mitochondria, which eventually will start to um, show up. I, I had the same experience with surgery. I, I felt like I never recovered from surgery. A year, a year and a half, and I've never been the same since. Well, that's exactly what I'm saying, and yet at the same time, I know that, um, you know, my mom has Parkinson's disease, although I have been told that I do not. Um, and, you know, she's got some other things, and there are certainly other people in the family that have, whatever, some tremors and like that. But, yeah, I mean, right, it was right after the surgery when, I mean, it started out with episodes of blindness and um, then into a whole host of <laughs> GI problems and stomach problems that have just, been horrible. You know, has just, as I say, gone on for three years, and it was actually finding somebody there at Mass General that um, who finally thought, you know, this is maybe a possibility. (laughs) In light of that, I'm wondering, since I'm having this biopsy next week, um, if there's something that the doctor needs to know, or would you, I would think, would already be aware that it causes another problem by itself. So you'll be at Mass General? Yeah. So I'll reassure you that they are, um, if you're having a muscle biopsy, it's it's not a procedure that people generally come in off the street for. And so they'll they'll know how to handle um, the potential metabolic stress for that. Um, If you're concerned about it at all, if you go on to the MitoAction website, there is a, a protocol for procedures requiring surgery that's very good. That's written by Dr. Corson and Margaret Clem, who are the mitochondrial disease experts at Tufts. And um, and and if, so, if you're concerned about it at all, you can be very well informed by having that and having that discussion with your doctor ahead of time. And and you'd find that um, if you look at mitoaction.org/backslash/guide. G-U-I-D-E, guide, like I'm your guide through the jungle. Guide, G-U-I-D-E. You have to register and accept the terms of use. That's just our disclaimer before we hand out medical information. And and then you'll be able to get in there and you'll see lots of information. But what I want you to look for is it'll say protocol for anesthesia and surgery. And you can print that out and then you can have that. You know, and, and it's very informative and it's something that um, I think many patients use. But I do want to reassure you that I am familiar with Mass General um, since we're based in Boston, and I think that they are very good about understanding mitochondrial disease and, and the risks of surgery. I have a comment, Christy. This is Wendy on uh, Helmsa. Um, I had a, a muscle biopsy in surgery after a preliminary um diagnosis of mitochondrial disease and then was confirmed, but I, my primary um, first known 
symptom of, of potential risk factors was slow awakening from anesthesia. And so when I went in for my surgery for um, my muscle biopsy and my sh shoulder surgery, um, the anesthesiologist, the day of the surgery, um, went over the precautions again with him, with my family members on what my what the potential risks are that I may have had a potential mitochondrial disease and to be informed. Because even though you've told your physician that, there is, you get assigned an anesthesiologist the day of the surgery or the day before the surgery that does your anesthesia, and they need to know that you have a possible mitochondrial, underlying mitochondrial disease. That's why you're having the muscle biopsy to start with, but that your potential risks of anesthesia um, need to be brought to the forefront. And you usually have an anesthesia consultant either the day before or the day of your surgery with the actual anesthesiologist that does your, your procedure. Hey. I just want to say I, I had my biopsy done at, at Mass General, and huh? they were wonderful. They reviewed everything. They said they went through it the night before. They were terrific. I didn't have a negative, you know, I mean, I was fine afterwards. They didn't. It wasn't general anesthesia, so I, I didn't have you know, like terrible after effects, you know, um, so, I mean, if you can avoid general anesthesia, I think that's a good idea. I already and, told um, you that I will be having general anesthesia. Oh, you will? And I've already actually told them that, uh, I can't tell you how many times that I've been under, and they said, oh, yeah, you know, 15, 20 minutes to recover, and, you know, I'm always like the last person in the recovery room to, to leave at the end of the day, you know, six hours later or whatever. So, um, I, I have to say, obviously, that I'm a little concerned about this coming up, even though it is at Mass General and actually was supposed to originally have been with Dr. Sims, um, but then apparently I guess it's been transferred to somebody else. Um, but I, I definitely encourage you to let the anesthesiologist know that day that you have delayed awakening and that they'll take every precaution that they can to... to um, to help you. I'm sure that that is something that is um, in their procedures and protocols for people that have had a history of delayed awakening. Right. I'm, yeah, I'm sure, you know, your your history and everything, you know, obviously it makes a big difference what, what you know now versus what you experienced three years ago. Right. And whatever, you know, anesthetic agents they use, you know, can make all the difference in the world. Right. Well, that's good. I appreciate that. I appreciate uh, the suggestion for that. I certainly will look up that... Uh, protocol on the uh, website. And I will say, though, that I, I had registered on the website. I know my wife had registered some time ago. Um, but um, although I'm registered, I, I never, ever seem to get anything. You're not getting any emails? No. I never get emails. In fact, I didn't hear about this meeting except for the fact that my wife forwarded on an email to me. So do me a favor. Um, send me an email directly, director at mitoaction.org, and let's get to the bottom of it. I'll, I can look up your um, address in our system and make sure there's not an error or a reason you're getting bounced or something like that, because I send out emails um, pretty frequently, so you would know. Even if I, I actually did send an email to you, um, directly to you, because you had spoken to my wife, and... Um, um, she asked me last night, she said, did you ever get anything back? And I said, I said, you know what? I, I never did. I said, so I just figured, you know, let's just be busy with a bunch of other people. <laughs> oh. So I'm sorry about that. And so if, and, and it is possible because um, 
because I'm just one one little person walking uphill, but but it's still no excuse. So please do it again, and I'll look out for it so that we can be sure. Someone today. Great. I'll I'll look out for it. Thanks very so, much. So so um, Jean and Wendy, would you also um, make an announcement about the new um, Yahoo group for adults for um, for my action that um, we were just talking about yesterday? Oh, sure. Um, for, for those for those who are adults and um, have a new diagnosis or uh, ongoing diagnosis or questions about diagnosis, uh, Mitral Action will be very shortly establishing a Yahoo group called Mitral Action, and it will be for people who are referred through MitralAction.org. And there will be people on that, that group who uh, have experienced mitochondrial disease for some time, uh, young adults, old adults, um, middle-aged adults, and um, we'll be happy to discuss with you, help answer questions, uh, or refer you to where you can find the answers to the questions. Thanks. Thanks, Jean. Hi, uh, um, this is Kathy. I came in late. Is that going to be an open group, Gene? Um, that is up to Mitoaction to determine, but my my initial uh, hope is that it will be restricted. Okay, I just thought I'd ask. Yeah, it's going to be a little different than Mito Adults in that it's going to be directly through Mitoaction, Kathy, because there's been quite a few um, requests recently for general requests for information about um, action and adult onset questions uh, that could probably get filtered into um, adults, but are gonna, we're going to form a full group specifically for action adults. But what do you mean that it's through action? Is this there the name of the organization or it's connected with the website in some way? Because you oh, can run mailing lists from the action website. That, that utility is there. Um, we were just thinking that it was more of a, uh, a forum to, to as people came to us and found our website and we were looking just for more of a, a gentle introduction to a couple other key people who could help them, similar to our MitoForum 1 support line, that this would be a way for folks to um, to be able to do that without jumping right into a already very established and active group. Oh, okay. Good. They have something kind of new and maybe lower traffic. Is that the idea? Right, and and um, you know Not more. I think with this in the Mito Action forum that's on the website. No, just to, just to have a way that I just get so many emails, particularly um, lately from adult patients who are just looking for answers and feel like they're the only person who has the disease as an adult. And I wanted to find a way that we could, um, you know, gently ease them into the adult mitochondrial disease community without necessarily just throwing them to another Yahoo list that that then they might feel overwhelmed by. And so this is just a more kind of an extension of our MitoForm 1 support program um, uh, in that way. There is a, a, a quite a bit of activity on Facebook, too. There's a Mito Adult group there that uh, there's discussion boards and stuff there as well. We've been picking up a number of people there, uh, well, with the Saturday uh, chat group. But well, I, I found that crazy this week. I, my mother's in the hospital. This time it's kidney stones, and she's been up and down. I, I'm sorry for coming in late. But. 
Oh, well, I'm glad you could make it, and yeah. I'll have it recorded. So, um, so that's always the good part. So, so I. Well, I can't. I can't get to the recordings through my computer the way they're set up now on the website. So I'm doubly sorry I'm late. <laughs> Um, I, I, that's okay, Kathy, and I, um, appreciate you got you coming on anyway, and, um, thank all of you for being here, and I'm gonna go ahead and wrap us up, and I will be, um, working this afternoon as well on the, um, written summary to go along with the audio file, but as soon as possible, I'll get the audio file up on the website. I'll post it on the page that's the announcement that we have for the meeting today as well as in the media area, and then it, it usually takes a little while for it to um, load as a podcast in iTunes, so we'll, you'll probably be able to download that by tomorrow, but keep checking. If you have any questions um, or ways that I can help, I'd be happy to try, and uh, be persistent if you don't hear back from me, because uh, <laughs> it's not my intention to, to leave anybody hanging. Director at MitoAction.org. So thank you all, and have a, a wonderful weekend. Here, bye. Bye. Here. Bye. 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 Bye